Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 16. In 2017, Adele Harris became the first woman to be named EY Scotland Entrepreneur of the Year. Arguably an even greater achievement, given that she is CEO of a third sector organisation, the Aberdeen-based health and social care charity Cornerstone. I interviewed Adele in front of a live Scottish Business Network audience in London and we were all transfixed as she calmly and matter-of-factly explained the transformation she has brought about at Cornerstone. Adele is clearly a strong and charismatic leader, but she is also down-to-earth, which helps her carry people through times of significant change. Maybe that stems partly from her background. She began her career as a police officer, left to start a family, and then worked her way up to CEO status after returning to work at admin level and gaining a first-class honours degree through the Open University. From an Irish background but brought up in England, Adele has since been adopted by Scotland. She's a director for the Scottish Council for Development and Industry and is a big fan of Aberdeen Football Club. The interview took place at the offices of Bristow's on Victoria Embankment and I began by asking Adele where she grew up. Adele, let's start by going back to your origins, where you grew up. Because you're actually uh, not Scottish originally, are you? You come from an Anglo-Irish background. Yes, um, I don't sound uh, uh, Scottish or Irish, I just sound English, which is kind of a bit bizarre, really. But I was born in Ireland, in the south of Ireland, in a place called uh, Drogheda, which is just south of the border with the north. And um, I was born, brought up in a very large Irish Catholic family. Um, And my father was out of work and moved over to England Um, when I was nine years old to join the prison service and the reason he was the most unlikely prison officer you would ever meet but the reason he joined the prison service was because the job came with a house and he had eight children or so you know a big house was kind of essential so I lived uh, from nine until I joined the police and moved to London I lived in um, Buckinghamshire and in Bristol. Uh, And as you were growing up what sort of things did you think you might be doing with your career? Well, my parents would have liked me to have been a nun. Right. But, um, <laughs> Did that appeal that to was, you at all? No, that was never going to happen. <laughs> I, I guess when I was growing up, the, the thing I was most passionate about, it's probably really hard to imagine now, um, was ballet. I, I was just loved doing ballet, and um, I always thought I would be a ballerina. And I did have an audition at the Royal Ballet School in, uh, in Richmond when I was about 11, And I didn't get to dance because there was hundreds of girls there and they just took us all into a room, put us up onto the bar and they came round with tape measures and people sort of looking you up and down. And then half of the the girls were told, you know, you're not going anywhere forward. And uh, I just remember crying all the way home and thinking, if only they'd let me dance. But obviously it was not meant to be and probably quite right. Uh, And the teacher was the other thing. I thought I might be a teacher. Right. So why did you not become a teacher? (laughs) Um, When I was uh, about, I suppose, 15, 16, um, I was brought up in the the family that university was never discussed. Um, It wasn't discouraged, but it just wasn't on the agenda in the way that, you know, probably all our children, those of us that have got children now, it would be. So there was always an expectation you would leave home and get a job Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. 
and uh, we had a presentation from the um, Avon and Somerset police cadets and it all looked rather fun because they seemed to get paid for just playing sport and going off to Wales to climb mountains and there was lots of boys um, and so I went for a, uh, an interview um, with Avon and Somerset police and they had their quota of women which is quite interesting isn't it these days um, and so they suggested I tried the Met Police cadets which right. I did and I got into the cadets when oh. I was 17. So at that point that was you could be your career? Did, yes, I don't really know. looking that far ahead? Yeah, I don't know at 17 yeah. if we really yeah. think like that, but certainly um, at that point in time, I imagine that would be my, mm. my career. And once I got into the police force, and I did 11 years in, in total in the right. police, there was so much I wanted to do for women in particular in the police force. And if I hadn't had my family, I'm you know, who knows, I may well have made that a career. But at that time, and I'm showing my age a bit, there wasn't any flexible working, um, you couldn't work part-time, so the idea that you could be a police officer in such a pressured job when you didn't know when you might be called in and have a family, it just it just wasn't possible. Right, okay. So, so who you knows? just had to leave to, yes. to start the, mm-hmm. set the family up. Mm-hmm. So how was that after being a busy work life, becoming a mum? Well, my first son, uh, Ross, has a, a disability and... Um, we, that was really the main reason why I left the police and uh, moved up to Scotland to be near his grandparents. Um, and um, I decided, because obviously his needs were, were um, very important, of course, mm. um, I decided not to work for a few years. Um, and I had another son, so I have two, two children. So I didn't work until they went to school, but I just couldn't help myself getting involved in all sorts of things. So I did a little bit of voluntary youth work I helped out in the local library, um, helped out the toddler group, you know, all those sorts of things. So I kept myself busy. And one thing I'd always regretted was that I'd never gone to university. And although I'd done 11 years in the police, the skills are not really transferable unless you want to be a security guard or something. At that time, you know, if I'd applied Mm. for jobs, just having been in the police wasn't really going to get me very far. So while I was out of work for those five years, I did an open university degree in health and social care. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Right. And so what was your first step into, into work um, after that? I went to work for the NHS, NHS Grampian, um, and um, I worked in health improvement, health promotion. And the reason I was attracted into that job was because they were looking for sessional workers to go into schools and talk about sex, drugs and rock and rock roll. And, roll. <laughs> <laughs> and it fitted in nicely with having a family. So, you, you know, right. I was working school hours... And because I was paid by the hour, I could sort of pick and choose what I did. So that was my first um, job after the police, was a health promotion officer Mm -hmm. um, with a particular interest or um, the work I did was around young people and, as I say, uh, sexual health and drugs. So at that point, was it something you obviously wanted to work, probably needed to work, and um, it was interesting fitted in with your... Your lifestyle did you have a big driving ambition to push on to do something bigger I did after after a couple of years of, of that working in the NHS because I I had my degree by this point and I could also you know I just started to see that I could do more mm. and um, I you know I was being paid about six pounds an hour at the time and 
I was working in schools, as I say, but I was also sometimes doing people's photocopying, and I just right. instinctively, not that there's anything wrong in that, of course, but I instinctively knew that there was probably a little bit more I could give. Mm. So um, I promoted myself shamelessly within uh, the NHS in uh, Grampian. It was at a time when there was lots of opportunities, there was lots of jobs, and um, I worked my way up, if that's the right um, phrase, in the NHS, so that when I left uh, NHS Grampian, I was the workplace team manager for something called Healthy Working Lives, Scotland's yeah. Health at Work. So I, I, it, was a, it was an environment where if you were prepared to work hard um, and you were ambitious, there was lots of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the turning point for right. me in terms of my career. What was the next step then? I went from the NHS to be the deputy CEO at a charity in Aberdeen called Aberdeen Foyer. And um, it's a homelessness charity that works with young people who are unemployed. And um, when I joined the foyer, it was a relatively small organisation. I think there was only about 20 of us who worked there. And I worked alongside a very inspirational gentleman called um, Ken Milroy, uh, who was the CEO. And uh, him and I just just worked really very well together. And the foyer grew. And um, it was towards the end of the eight years I was at the foyer that I realised that I'd found, I guess, working in this sector, I'd found something I was good at. And uh, the ambition kicked in and I thought, I don't want to just do something local, I want to do something national and on a a bigger scale. Right. So it was Cornerstone... That next after next. that, yes. yeah. yeah. So did, did what happened there? You, you saw the job and thought that's that's for well, me. Well, my son Ross, that I've mentioned, who has a disability, he was cared for by Cornerstone. We had a team of support workers that used to come into our house and support him, and uh, so I knew the organisation. And I went to the AGM as a parent, and uh, Nick Baxter, who was the founder of Cornerstone and the only other CEO. He'd been there for 27 years. He announced at the AGM that he was going to be retiring this time next year, Mm. and I just thought, I want that job. (laughs) And uh, I went after it and and got it. So what position was Cornerstone in when you you took over? How different to the the position you're in now? Um, It was and always had been under Nick's um, stewardship, a really well-respected charity doing wonderful things. Um, at the time I got the job, and I guess it was probably why the board appointed me, um, was it needed to modernise. It mm. was quite old-fashioned, it was quite traditional. Uh, 27 million turnover at the time, and most of the, you know, in fact all of the work was adults with learning disability and contracts with local government. And the good old days of um, public sector funding just going up every year mm. had gone. And as say, Nick led the organisation, I mean, he founded it and grew it from nothing. Very strong values, very strong charitable purpose. But in the preceding year, um, it had run at quite a serious deficit. And there were lots of things happening in the organisation to do with um, efficiency and cost cutting. And and I think one of the reasons I got the job was because I wanted to bring a more business, but without losing site of our mm-hmm. values uh, approach to running a charity and I needed to do a lot of modernisation and a lot of cultural change to get us back into a financially sustainable position um, and, and that uh, was with the position of uh, public funding become even even more mm-hmm. um, difficult in the, the, the years since so how did you go about tackling that? 
What were the key steps? Um, the first thing, or one of the first things to do was to, like any business, we had all our eggs in one basket. Um, it's not a very nice way to talk about people, but I'm sure for the purposes of the story, you'll forgive me. But we, you know, we would we were predominantly providing care and support to adults with learning disabilities, and. I realised pretty quickly after meeting lots of my wonderful, brilliant colleagues that the skills were transferable and that we needed to have, you know, more than one type of income stream. So the first thing that we did was started to invest in other in other social care um, markets. So we now, for example, have a fostering agency. We work with... Um, people who come out of prison. We have a number of social enterprises um, that provide employment for people with disabilities. And of course, as the population ages and dementia is one of the biggest challenges in the world, not just the UK at the moment, we invested a lot in building our capacity and our skills around supporting people Mm. with dementia. So that was one of the things. The second thing was we had a £27 million turnover, but in my first week... Um, we lost uh, a big contract through a retendering process in South Lanarkshire, and we lost eight percent of our business overnight. I didn't even know, you know, that as I walked in in week one that this was happen- this tender was uh, was out live, and that shook us the whole company because all the preceding years we'd just grown and grown and grown, and suddenly there was this real risk that through mm. competitive retendering, you know, we could lose. Business and if it happened in South Lanarkshire, well, it could happen in Glasgow or Aberdeen or whatever. Mm. So, looking at the balance sheet, we had a turnover of 27 million, but we had no assets. So, the other thing I guess that was key to turning things around was um, I introduced a, quite an ambitious capital development plan. So, we started to design and build and buy properties to become a social landlord. So, we have assets on the balance sheet, but more importantly, we're providing homes for the people that we support. So right. we're um, not just providing the care and support, but we're also providing the housing. So those were probably the two mm. things. There's quite a lot okay. of other things going on sure as well. Sure there were, yeah. They were the how how easy was it in terms of culture and bringing your team along with you through all this change? Well, we've not really stopped changing in the, la- mm. in the last 11 years. Um, I'm sure when I walk into a room at the start of a new three-year planning cycle, people must go, oh, God, <laughs> not again. But I think it's the type of industry and work that we do that you, you just can't stand still. You have to change constantly and react to your environment. Um, but it's difficult, isn't it? I think we all probably know that. There's lots of people who are really resistant to change. Mm. And um, what I've found over the years is it's the hearts and minds that win people over, not the facts and figures. Mm-hmm. And all too often you, we try and present an argument in terms of data or financial and we say this is why we have to change. And I've just worked out really that actually getting people's hearts and minds and getting them on board, right. you know, in that way uh, makes it easier. But it's not easy. Some people do find change difficult and are not prepared to to go along with it, sure. and that's that's difficult. But presumably the organisation has a reputation for being quite innovative now, so you're going to attract yes. those sort of people. Yes, I mean, we have four values in our organisation, uh, to be caring, to be customer-focused, to be professional, and to be pioneering. And uh, if you put yourself out there with that kind of mm. title, then people do... Um, it does attract a certain type of person. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, 
that wants to be leading, that wants to be innovative, that wants to try things, that wants to take risks. And again, that's quite unusual in the delivery of public services. Uh, you've created this um, sort of new model for social care called Local Cornerstone, mm-hmm. um, which I know a lot of people are asking you about, you're speaking at conferences about. What, what's that all about? Well, we started one of our three-year business planning processes with our board in 2015, and we'd just gone through all the public sector austerity and all the public sector cuts, and we were sitting at a board meeting looking at next year's budget and having a conversation with the board about whether or not we could afford to pay the living wage. And I don't mean the minimum wage, I mean the living wage, and Cornerstone has always been a living wage as a minimum uh, employer. And I remember driving home that night and thinking, I don't want to be the CEO of a company that that can't pay people who do this most important valued job, you know, can't pay them a living wage. It's just all wrong. So with the support of Scottish Enterprise, I took three months out of the business, um, myself and two colleagues, and we went around, I say around the world, we didn't go to that many places, but we went to America, went to Holland, we visited other businesses in the UK, and um, we begged stole and borrowed all the good things so we went to see Southwest Airlines for example some of you would be familiar with went to see Timpsons who've got a really great business model and we went to Holland and visited an organisation called Burtzorg which is a neighbourhood care company Um, and it was out of all of that that Local Cornerstone was born and uh, it sets out to address a lot of the challenges that are facing social care at the moment and it's a very long story but I'll keep it short at its heart is um, having a company with no managers um, and having neighbourhood teams, hence the word local cornerstone, neighbourhood teams of better paid, upskilled social care practitioners who know because we trust them, they know what to do for the people that they support and they're not managed in the traditional sense. So we've gone from having nine layers of management, you know, support assistants, support workers, team leaders, service managers, blah, 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 to having a completely flat structure and we've created these local care and support teams across Scotland. We have a team of coaches who help the teams and, and support them, but they don't manage them. And we've split the business into 10 franchises, like branches that operate like franchises, so they make local decisions. And each one of those has a branch leader who's responsible for the business, but they're not responsible for the people. So it's quite radical, no managers. We've had to completely change our culture. We've reduced our policies and procedures, for example, from 52 HR policies just down to seven um, because you can't say you trust and empower people and then Mm. give them a policy. We had one that said, if there's a storm, don't take someone in a wheelchair to the top of a hill. (laughs) Why you would. Uh, We actually had a policy on how to write policies as well. We had another one on drinking water safely. We're a very regulated industry, so a lot Mm. of policies Mm. come from that. But we've done this massive cultural change. We've got Cornerstone Central, which is uh, we had to reduce our overheads by 40% in order to redirect the resources into the community. So we've got a much slimmed down business support function and their job is to support the teams. A lot of larger businesses, the people out in the operations end up serving the business and not Mm. the other way around. We've turned all that kind of culture on its head so that if the teams need support with recruitment, with IT, with payroll, with HR, with whatever, then... Cornerstone Central exists to make life easy for them and to free up their time so they spend as much of it with the people that they support. And we have two um, very important people in our company who are called uh, the Advice and Support Coordinators, Just Ask, 
and their job is to shield the teams from the business. So if anyone's got a, any kind of problem, they take it to the uh, advice and support coordinators and they take it and they own mm. it and they solve it for them so that the people in the communities are out caring for people and not, you know, filling in forms and, you know, requests for new IT equipment or printers or whatever it might be. Um, the whole concept is that sure. they're freed up to do what they do sure. well. There's a lot more to it, including setting up the Cornerstone Foundation, which is a model we saw in America. So we've separated out our charitable arm, if you like, from our contracted work. And the Cornerstone Foundation exists to raise money to then distribute out into the communities and to the teams so they can do amazing things for the people that we support. Right. So it sounds like you're pushing social care in a kind of brave new direction, stripping away a lot of the bureaucracy and things that are holding it back. Are you finding that other organisations are looking at you and thinking, I can't believe they've done that, how did they do that? Because it's never been, all these years, people have been doing the same Yes, there's a, there's a social movement starting to develop. In fact, I was speaking at a conference this morning in, um, in London with, uh, about the future of public services, and there's lots of people who are trying to think more creatively about mm. how do we use the limited resources that we have. So that's really good to see. But the feedback that we get mostly when I talk about local cornerstone, um, and it's interesting because I don't necessarily see this of myself or of us because it's not just me, is people do say, gosh, that's brave um, that you even mm. started on this journey. And it hasn't been easy. It's, sure. it's been, you know, sometimes you go home and you think, oh, God, why don't I just leave it all alone? Mm -hmm. um, because that sort of transformational change is never easy. But um, we're now seeing the benefits. We've got 56 local care and support teams. We made it voluntary to go into a team. All the rest of the culture change wasn't voluntary. But we decided you couldn't force people to work this way so we had our first two teams our pioneers and I remember for a few weeks going home every night thinking oh gosh we've only got two teams this isn't really taking off the way I'd thought and then of course two become five and five become ten and it's their stories and the difference that, that they're making uh, to the lives of the people they support and just wonderful stories from our staff that used to be support assistants telling me I've, you know, I went to school, I didn't get any educational qualifications, I just did this as a job because I couldn't do anything else. Um, I'm, I was just a support assistant, no one listened to me, <coughs> I didn't have, you know, I wasn't valued, I wasn't appreciated, and now, look, you know, I can do this, I can do that, I can go to meetings and talk to professionals about the people mm. I support and I feel valued and listened to. It's just, it's just quite amazing. So it's now got a momentum of its own. And as I say, the stories that are coming out from the teams, uh, the difference it's making to people's lives, because they've just been freed up to make decisions. You know, mm. someone told me the other day, it was great, I could buy a pair of winter boots for Willie without having to fill in a form and it having to go up to Aberdeen for someone in finance to, you know, it's the simple things like that, sure. but it's, it's, really, um, it's really taking off. So what are, what are your uh, hopes for Cornerstone in the, in the future? Um, certainly while I'm CEO and this is being recorded so I'll have to stick to it I, I don't think I've got the uh, the energy or the will to go through any other major change this is this has got to be it this has got to work your team um, may be re relieved to hear yes, that yes I think well I, they, they keep reminding me that I've said that but no seriously I think if, if we can get this model to work and all the indications are that it is working and it, it you know is having the desired impact 
um, the next step really is to convince all the commissioners and the regulators who are all working with us and they're part of the evaluation but commissioners in particular still want to trade in hours of care you know that's what they buy they buy an hour and what we're trying to say is you've got to trust the teams you've got to give them the budget and let them provide great care and support to people and not just go on an hourly rate because the model just doesn't work within that kind of um, restriction so we're working really hard to try and change the system around us as well mm-hmm. so now I just hope that we continue to um, provide really high quality care and support um, don't ever never have had ambitions to grow bigger that's happened incrementally because I guess what we do we do well so it's not about getting bigger um, but I know what we don't want and that is we don't want to become just an arm's length provider of local government um, doing 15-minute visits that don't add any real value or enhance people's lives, and that's sure. really the driving force behind the change. Okay. Uh, and over the sort of 10 years or so that you've been heading up Cornerstone, is there anything you look back now and think, oh, maybe we should have done that differently? Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of things. Industrial relations um, it's not gone to plan, um, and I think on both sides, not just uh, on our side things could have been handled differently and we might not be be where we are just now um and certainly uh i have learned an awful lot about myself in terms of the pace i don't mean the pace at which i work just in terms of getting lots of stuff done quickly but i i don't or i don't always stop and bring people with me hmm. and i try really hard to do that now um okay. because if you're already you know over here and you're wondering why everyone hasn't caught up then that can be frustrating for other people. Um, communication too, when we started Local Cornerstone, um, you know, obviously we had to engage the workforce in, in, in the new strategy and just showing an organisational diagram that takes away nine layers of management is a bit of a shock when you're one of those managers. So, you know, I've learned an awful lot about the way you, you communicate key messages um, We've had some social enterprises that we've set up that have failed. Wouldn't necessarily say I wouldn't try those again because mm. you learn, but it's a shame that that, that obviously happens. Um, so, yeah, cause there's lots and lots of things I'd do differently, but, um, you know, like everybody, you live and learn, don't yeah, you? Course, and you yeah, try yeah. not to repeat your mistakes. Uh, it seems to me that Scotland has quite a good reputation in terms of social enterprise. Lots of people doing some quite innovative things. Do you know what that is? Well, we've got another great social entrepreneur here in the in the audience uh, from Glencraft. It, 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 it's true, isn't it? I think there is something, maybe it's something about the size of the country and we all, we all sort of know each other. Um, so there's a very sort of supportive environment. The Scottish government, I'm sure we don't want to get into politics, but the current Scottish government are very supportive of the third sector in a way that they're not in England. And so, you know, they have actually invested in in social enterprise, Mm. Um, you know, third sector organisations around the table in in terms of, you know, things like health and social care integration in a way that they're not in England. They're very much seen as a contractor or a a provider. So I think the the size of the country, the fact that you can have relationships and build relationships with people that you actually know, Mm. you know, government isn't a million miles removed, um, you know... uh, and I think the just the network of social entrepreneurs that we have in Scotland, there's lots of people doing really, really 
amazing work and maybe we feed off each other I don't know but um, uh, you just don't see you don't get a sense that it's the same in England it seems to be more fragmented that's not right. to say there aren't yeah. good yeah. social enterprises but sure, yeah. there isn't really that cohesive kind of approach to investing in social enterprise okay. I don't think and if you were to meet um, a, a young person or somebody starting up uh, a social enterprise venture in Scotland would you have any advice for them? I think the only advice, and I, I probably would say this to anyone, whether it was a social enterprise or not, is to, um, and I hope this doesn't sound like granny teaching you all to suck <laughs> eggs, but it's having an absolute clear purpose for whatever your your business, your social enterprise, your um, activity is, because everything, you know, I often talk about that being our North Star along with our values. You can't actually go that far wrong. If, mm. if everyone is really clear when they get up in the morning, what the vision is for the company, um, what the purpose is of the company, what the values are, you can't really, you can't really go wrong. Okay. Yeah. You've got to stick to that and mm-hmm. give people the freedom to operate within that environment. Um, and there's lots of businesses who, if you ask them, social enterprises or not, what is your purpose? Some will say it's to make money. Well, that isn't your purpose. There must you know, mm. The money-making comes as a result of what you do. Mm. And a lot of companies I've worked in, social enterprises and others or people I meet, they have um, their company values on the toilet door. But actually, if you ask anyone who works there, what are the values? They couldn't tell you. Mm. So I think those are the two things for me. You need to be really clear about your vision, make sure you've got the right people on the bus all facing in the same direction and, and going forward. And that's one of the that was one of the hardest things with our change process actually was when we re- recruited into the new jobs, the coaches and the branch leaders, we lost some really good colleagues, very loyal people who'd worked with us for a long time, but they weren't buying into the vision. Um, mm. They weren't able to, to work in the way that we needed them to. And I think that's another bit of great advice I would give people is surround yourself with people who share the same vision and you just you don't need the mood hoovers you don't need the people who are going to tell you 10 reasons why you can't do something mm. you really have to have people around you that are you know committed to the journey you can argue about how you get there but and have differences of opinion and be challenged but you've all got to believe in the in the end goal I think sure, yeah, so yeah. that was a lot of advice wasn't it but was good advice. I think that's what mood I'd say hoovers, what mood hoovers mood hoovers yeah yeah um, you're also involved in quite heavily in the SCDI and also the Aberdeen Football Club uh, Community Trust. Trust. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's the attraction there and, and what do you do? Um, well, the Aberdeen Football Club Community Trust, which is a great, you know, relatively small but local charity, obviously, in Aberdeen, um, that was uh, the uh, brainchild of um, uh, a gentleman called George Ewell, who doesn't work at the football club anymore. But when he had this idea that the club should have a community trust, he uh, approached me and a few other people and said, you know, would you come on board and help us to get this up and running? And although I was busy, I thought football, which is one of my passions, charity, you know, why wouldn't you try and help? So I've really enjoyed that, actually. It's a a great organisation. And it's amazing that the language of football is something that, whether you like football or not, actually, is, is just like a universal language. 
and when you use it to help people to you know lose weight or to do more exercise or whatever whatever you use the trust for mm. they're doing some great work with people with dementia on football memories and things like that um, it's 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 yeah it's great so I've really enjoyed that and I don't do very much there actually I, I rock up at meetings and support where I can um, the SCDI I got a, a phone call because I was the president of the Aberdeen Grampian and Chamber Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce for a couple of years and there aren't that many people in the third sector in Scotland who um, <coughs> have that have the same kind of links to business I don't know why but they don't seem to be and I think because of my time at the chamber um, I got the call from SCDI who um, also needed to modernize let's say I don't think they had very many women on their board they certainly didn't have anybody from mm. the third sector so um, I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll join the board and see what I can do to help um, ensure that social enterprise, the whole community piece and the quality of life piece is on the agenda as, alongside all the, all the business and influencing policy that right. they do. So quite a busy, uh, busy yeah. life you have and uh, when you're not doing that or at Pitodry or <laughs> what, what other kind of things you do, how do you enjoy relaxing at the weekend? Um, well, I've already said we're sort of a football-mad family. Um, so uh, it's either Wolver- Wolverhampton Wanderers or Aberdeen. Seems to take oh, really? up a fair oh, bit well. of our family are time. Doing well. Yes, they yeah. are. Yes, they're doing very well. Um, our house is called Molyneux. How sad is that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we do a lot. And my, my son, Ross, I've mentioned. I do have another son, too. Poor thing, Stuart, never gets a mention. But, you know, because of Ross's disability, we're still very involved. Although he, he's married and he lives five minutes away from us. He met his wife at the Disabled Supporters Club at the football, actually. They need a lot of support still, so we, we spend a lot of time with them. I like going to the theatre. I love reading books. That's my switching off time and my other most favourite thing to do is open water swimming oh really yeah in, wow. the, in the nice weather oh, <laughs> although in Stonehaven where I live we what, have in the sea 50, in the river uh, rivers and locks right, mainly right. and and in Stonehaven where I live we have a 50 metre pool open air seawater pool which is my favourite place on the planet so I spend wow. as much time in there as I can in the summer in the winter as well no it shuts sadly I would go but in the winter go, if it was swimming open, in the... but sea in the winter and all that no, no I tend to just go Phew. into the indoor pool in the winter yeah. yeah well I've yeah. just had a lovely long holiday in New Zealand and Australia I'm not long back and uh, that was just great for open water swimming nice. as you can imagine much better climate than yes. Scotland <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been a really interesting session yeah. thank you so thank much you. Adele very inter- fasc- fascinating story to listen to big round of applause please Adele Harris, a very switched-on social entrepreneur. I'm not sure about that open-water swimming, though. Sounds a bit too parky, if you ask me. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Remember, you can attend these live masterclasses if you join the Scottish Business Network. I'll be back again in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.